CHD. Uh, I'm back again. It's November and I'm doing a show with James Corbett and we're going to talk about the newest version of the pandemic treaty, the missing international health regulation amendments, um, the breakfast I did with the Sovereignty Coalition, Children's Health Defense and other organizations in Congress this past week. Um, finally, we are going to talk about how everything that's been happening to us links together, how all these terrible things um, that are hitting us from different directions, like the way our children are being educated in school, it's all actually part of the same thing. So we're gonna talk to James uh, about that. Welcome. Hello, Meryl, good to see you again. I wish we could be talking in happier circumstances, but anyway, we can at least set the record straight about what's going on in the world from our perspective, yes. huh? So anyway, the WHO keeps coming out with new versions of the pandemic treaty. Every two or three, four months, we get a new one. And this month, month of October, we actually got two new versions. We got an, a version on October 16th that was leaked. And then we got a, a more final version on the 30th. And this time they've, they've dropped um, most of the names in between the version on the 16th and the version on the 30th. And now it's simply the pandemic agreement this time around. So each time they've dropped a new version of the treaty, it's had a new name uh, to keep everybody confused. Yeah, exactly. Now in this treaty, they seem to have taken out some of the really, really bad looking stuff and tried to tone down the language, but it's very similar to the bureau version that we got in June. Um, do you, you have some thoughts about how this version is different? I sure do. Well, um, at any rate, uh, all of those creepy fill-in-the-blank later definitions uh, that we got in some of the earlier drafts seem to have been filled in with, uh, well, more gobbledygook for the most part, but at least there is something there. So, for example, um, in Article, Article 1, use of terms, it's basically defining or at least trying to introduce some of these concepts that they're trying to seed into the public imagination here. Of course, it starts with the preamble talking about uh, recalling the Constitution of the World Health Organization, which states that the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being. Yada yada. What does that mean? And who gets to decide what is the highest attainable standard of health and who is obligated to meet that standard and under what conditions, let alone who is allowed to meet those conditions. Um, it talks about gross inequities at national and international levels, of course, as a bone to make sure that the third world is on board with this agreement. It talks about the whole of government and whole of society approaches at country and community levels, which is going to be critical for us for achieving sustainable improvements in pandemic prevention, preparedness and response. Asterisk, how do you measure such um, a sustainable improvements? What does sustainable really mean in that context anyway? Uh, it talks about underscoring the importance of promoting the early, safe, transparent, and rapid sharing of samples and genetic sequence data of pathogens with pandemic potential, as well as the fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising therefrom, which is a big enough catch-all to include all sorts of and all manner of um, monstrosities that they might come up, come up with in the name of 
um, protecting us from these potential harms. Um, it talks about requiring predictable, sustainable, and sufficient financial human, logistic, and techno technical resources, and that unequal development across countries is, is a danger to us all. And then it specifically says, noting the, ado the adoption of the political declaration of the United Nations General Assembly high-level meeting on pandemic pre prevention, preparedness, and response, yada, yada. Remember, we were talking about that in our last conversation. Yeah, of course, the UN held their, their annual shindig there in, in New York in September. And as part of that, they tacked on that ridiculous political declaration, which, of course, at the time we're noting is basically just political theater. It's just a UN General Assembly declaration. Like it doesn't doesn't have any teeth to it. It doesn't matter. But of course, now now the WHO gets to cite that political declaration as see people are all around the world are calling on us to do something. Won't you do something about this? So we have to respond anyway. Then it gets into the use of terms. Um, for example, one that sticks sticks out for me, of course, is infodemic, which they have bothered to define here. Infodemic means too much information, false or misleading information in digital and physical environments during a disease outbreak. It causes confusion and risk-taking behaviors that can harm health. It also leads to mistrust in health authorities and undermines public health and social measures. I mean, just there, we could talk for hours about that, just that one definition of infodemic, because even the way that it is actually, even the grammar of that is intriguing to me. Infodemic means too much information, comma, false or misleading information. Does that mean too much information, false information or misleading information? Or does that mean information that is false or misleading? Again, the way they write this, I think is intentionally confusing and meant to give them that wiggle room. But anyway, of course, it raises the fundamental question, who gets to decide what is false or misleading information? Well, of course, it is the very health authorities whose trust is undermined by the false information that they're giving out, right? They, If they give out false information, who gets to call them out on it? Of course, no one. Anyway, that's the, uh, the snake eating its own tail part of this. Um, then they define the one health approach or define, I should put in quotation marks there, means an integrated, unifying approach that aims to sustainably balance and optimize the health of people, animals, and ecosystems. It recognizes that the health of humans, domestic, and wild animals, plants, and the wider environment is closely linked and interdependent, blah, blah, blah. Again, a lot of language. It doesn't, again, tell you anything specific. Oh, okay. So everyone's health is related to everything else on the planet's health. Okay, thanks really helpful. Um, pandemic means the global spread of a pathogen or variant that infects human populations with limited or no immunity through sustained and high transmissibility from person to person, overwhelming health systems with severe morbidity and high mortality and causing social and economic disruptions, all of which requires effective national and global collaborations and coordination for its control. Interestingly enough, they put right in the definition of pandemic that pandemic requires internet, uh, global collaboration and coordination. I mean, that's part of the, what, when they say pandemic, they mean something that requires, necessitates global government, essentially, is what they're talking about. Yes. Um, so they're baking it into the cake for themselves. And also, I find it interesting that, as we've noted before, remember, they, uh, the WHO page um, took out um, high deaths as part of the pandemic um, 
uh, what they were calling pandemic back in the day before the swine flu non-pandemic. Um, so they had to change the, the definition. Well, now, at, again, depending on how you read this sentence, overwhelming health systems with severe morbidity and high mortality. They may be trying to, they may, there, there may be some actual something that you can point to. Okay. High mortality and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, severe morbidity. Except, except how be, high, right? Yes. Pandemic, I, I think they'll have the wriggle room to say no, but at any rate, it's, it's in this verbiage for whatever that's worth. Anyway, that's just, and that's just article one. <laughs> I could go on. Yes. Yeah, so I noticed that their their definitions were interesting too. They redefined the word coverage. So coverage in their definition, I looked it up in the dictionary, I looked it up in several dictionaries, and coverage means, you know, covering a story or health insurance primarily, that sort of coverage. But they say coverage is access to broad forms of health care without financial stress. They would not use the word health insurance. They want to confuse people and make them think it's health care, but they don't really talk about health care at all in this document. They only talk about coverage. Um, so that's another way they redefine things. Infodemic is, is a neologism. You know, it's a new word. It's not an old word. It's a word that people started using. And um, this treaty uses it for some reason, because they don't want to use other words to really define what is misinformation, disinformation, what is it they're directing countries to censor. So their censorship language has sort of been rolled back a little bit to be fuzzier than it was before. Their language on One Health also, the One Health language always has to be fuzzy because okay, I'll tell you what I think One Health is. One Health is the treaty without One Health gives them the ability to collect lots of potential pandemic pathogens and have an excuse for when they get, you know, leaked from labs or deliberately spread. Oh, well, we don't know where it came from. It's not our fault. We were just researching it to get vaccines. And this happened. And it gives the WHO ability to have control of many potential pandemic pathogens. But when you add One Health to the treaty, you justify, you've, you've already defined pandemics as being caused by spillover. And pandemics are so terrible, they cost trillions of dollars and kill millions of people. Therefore, you have the right to do all these very big things in society to prevent or reduce the effect of a pandemic, which could involve moving people around, you know, locking them down, closing schools, who knows, you know, forced vaccines, forced drugs, forced foods. We just don't know what they want to do. But One Health provides that without actually saying so in the treaty. So it's it's these other documents. It's this whole medical literature that the One Health Commission and the, the Quadripartite has put out and other organizations that have been paid off to develop literature on One Health that really explains, you know, what they really intend to do with that concept. I wanted to talk about the, their use of consensus. They talk about how they really want um, a lot of decisions to be made by the Conference of the Parties, which is this new thing 
thing they're going to develop in the future after everyone has signed on to the pandemic treaty. And they're going to develop a new secretariat, a new big bureaucracy at the WHO to manage all this pandemic preparedness stuff. Um, but, they, but once they have the conference of the parties, they want them to make their decisions, uh, particularly when they're adding annexes or protocols, by consensus. What does that mean? To me, that means the diplomats are being given a pass. They don't have to vote. Their vote will not be recorded. Nobody will know which side of the fence they were on, right? And nations like the United States can just go to all these people and say, look, look, everybody else is going this way. You know, you can't really you know, go against consensus. You know, you're going to look bad. We'll get you fired. You know, just keep your mouth shut. Even if you're on the other side, keep your mouth shut and it'll be good. And so I think that's the mechanism to push things through is this um, emphasis on consensus rather than votes. Also, I noticed that for certain things, the language is very specific, like all the nations must uh, either have a genomics lab or find these potential pandemic pathogens and transfer them to genomics labs nearby or to the WHO and the labs need to be in the WHO network and we're gonna have a bio hub and we're gonna do this, that and the other, it's very specific. But for other things like the benefits nations are gonna get from participating in this process, it's totally vague. You have no idea what benefits you're gonna get, if any. Costs, totally vague, no, no dollar amounts, no indication of even what projects will be covered by the money that is going to come in. But the, the COP, the Conference of Parties, is going to handle the money. So they haven't been formed yet, right? So there's no entity that's even dealing with money now. They're talking about how they're going to collect money. They need all these new ways to get bring money in. They need public-private partnerships and stakeholders and blah, blah, blah. But the entity that's going to handle the money and figure out how much they need and where it's going doesn't exist yet. So it, it's this odd blend of specificity and vagueness that um, to me is extremely suspicious. To switch over to the amendments to the international health regulations, I have a feeling that's which James Rogusky has said and others, that the amendments are really where everything is going to play out in the end because there is so much secrecy around them. And I heard an a European attorney yesterday say that he's followed the UN and the WHO for 20 years. He has never seen this level of secrecy regarding negotiations. So we're getting versions of the treaty every few months. You know, we had, we've had at least four or five different versions. The amendments, we got a version in February and there has been total silence since then even though they're having frequent meetings to work on a new set of amendments and you know to harmonize the 307 that were produced by nations but as we found out at the beginning of october they the who does not intend to let us see what those negotiated versions are probably until after they have been approved by the World Health Assembly, the members of the WHO. I think they're gonna be willing to jettison the treaty, which requires a two thirds vote. And it 
probably would actually come to a vote because there's a lot of nations who are not happy with the versions that have come out so far. But the amendments only require a 50% vote. They're likely to do a consensus procedure on them. And they're likely, why not, to put everything that we don't like that's in the treaty that they want, just throw it all into the amendments. So the amendments do it all. And they can scuttle the treaty and call it good. Oh, well, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we didn't do all those bad things that were in the treaty. We're, we're just amending our existing international health regulations. Not a big deal. Okay. Uh, there's a lot to say there. And I think um, you're so right. I think that the pandemic agreement, the treaty is, that's kind of the, the, the long-term stretch goal, the grab bag of, Hey, if we could have everything. And uh, to a certain extent, I agree that it is almost useless to be examining the text as it exists now, because not only will it change undoubtedly between now and whatever actually they're proposing it at the uh, next World Health Assembly, but more to the point, as you point out, Article 21 is, I think, the absolute core meat and bones of this agreement because it is where they say, hey, and by the way, we're going to create this entirely new governing body with its own bureaucratic infrastructure that will essentially be able to change anything at any time going forward by this process. But don't worry, you know, everyone's going to be a member of this board and blah, blah, blah. The Conference of the Parties. And for people who don't know about the history of the UN's various bureaucracies and the various Conference of the Parties that exist and how this is a, how they use this to govern their various conventions, uh, I will be writing about that in my uh, uh, editorial, actually, this coming weekend. So I hope people will uh, stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for that. But essentially, what they are doing is they're leaving it open as this kind of giant ongoing blank check that they can write themselves anything they want at any time in the future. All they have to do is secure this agreement. So, um, yes, I think they would very much like to get this agreement in place, if only because no matter what it says, they can change and amend and evolve it in the future via this new bureaucracy that's being created. I think you're also right to point out that the financing obviously is an important part of this. And it is something that uh, they're kind of, again, writing themselves the blank check in the future. The conference of the parties will form, um, will uh, create the uh, funding mechanism for this. And I think they've set themselves a date of 2026 to create a sustainable financial mechanism or whatever it is. Um, as to the fuzziness versus clarity on certain things, I think the fuzziness with regards to the carrots of what what do you actually get? What benefits will, will accrue if you sign on to this magical agreement? Uh, I think that is intentionally being left vague because that seems to me that is probably what is actually being negotiated here. We know what they all what they want in terms of censorship abilities and powers and money and all of that. Now the only question is, okay, so now what do we have to, what kind of incentives do we have to give to these third world countries or these European countries or whoever in order to get them on board with this agreement? So that's where probably the real negotiation is taking place at this point. With regards to the IHR and the secrecy, surrounding that. Yeah, I think that's probably where the rubber really does meet the road because again, that's already existing. They already have the infrastructure and we've already seen how they pass those types of amendments. Like what we saw last year with just the, okay, anyone, yeah, anyone have anything to say? No. Okay. Done. That's, and that's the, uh, the, that image of that consensus agreement that you're talking about there that they want to institute with the agreement, but they've already got it with the IHRs. So they're going to use it. And 
again, for people who didn't see our conversation last month, they maybe they didn't catch it or don't understand it. But yes, they are not only negotiating those IHR amendments and trying to harmonize the hundreds of different suggestions they've received from the member states behind closed doors in totally secret off the books meetings that we have no access to. But as as we saw last month, they are now saying, you know, there's no way we're going to get this in done in time to for that four month lead time that we are contractually obligated under the terms of the WHO constitution, et cetera. We are supposed to present these four months in advance of the World Health Assembly. We're not going to be able to do that. And so they're saying, oh, okay, no problem, whatever. You can basically present it at any time up to and including the World Health Assembly and we'll pass it then. So, you know, that, that really is obviously where they're going to put whatever they really need. They're going to put it in the IHR amendments. And then I think the, the agreement is essentially going to be that kind of rubber stamp for the future, if they can get that in place. And at any rate, I'd say we have more leverage at this point, political leverage over getting states to reject this agreement than we do over the IHR amendments, which as we know, again, all the parties, all the member states are already privy to. It's already in place. All they have to do is have one of their sham meetings where they basically just go around the table and say, any objections? No? Okay, passed. So uh, that seems to me where they're going to put whatever they really need in their agenda. Yeah. So the Congressional Research Service wrote uh, um, a short memo as when they're asked to do so by members of Congress about this and said, well, the amendments really are an international treaty, even though they were previously signed by executive agreement, in other words, by the, the, the president, you know, the State Department. Um, and don't we must not forget the State Department is an arm of the CIA. Um, so although in the United States, the federal government has gotten away with making these executive agreements, still it is a treaty under international law and Congress does have the power, had it, if it chooses to use it, to demand you know, advise and consent by the Senate or potentially say, look, because the House is, the, is Republican, you know, majority and the Senate is Dem majority. Well, we want to look at it in the House because the Senate isn't going to. And so that's a possibility. We've um, talked to one or two members about this. And um, it seems like you could make a stink. The fact that the secrecy is so intense. Um, the European lawyer said, look, you can't even find a crumpled up piece of paper from the discussions. You know, they're collecting everything. They want. They don't want people to know what's going on. So, I think the secrecy is a wedge. Whether we're able to use it or not, I don't know. You know, I'll, I'm going to be in five countries in Europe over the next two and a half weeks. So, I might get a. I'm going to meet a few small number of parliamentarians, and I might get a sense of whether anybody's willing to bring these things up. But we have to assume that um, at a minimum, the amendments will be passed and that maybe the treaty will be passed in May. G given the amendments that were passed last year that speeded up everything, um, if nations do not reject last year's amendments, the new amendments from 2024 will go into effect in 12 months and nations will have 10 months to opt out of those amendments if they so choose. Um, but the treaty, will, if, it, if that goes forward, only requires that 40 nations ratify it, which can be done very quickly, potentially, 
if the globalists wanted. And then it'll go into effect after a month um, after that. And so the treaty could be effective um, in the summer of next year. In other words, eight months. And, uh, you know, we could see countries uh, starting to share their pandemic pathogens. The biohub that WHO was creating has been created. You know, that a lot of this architecture, very, a great deal of the architecture is already in place. They're already doing things they're asking for permission to do in these two documents. Um, so, <laughs> so where do we go from there? So how do citizens behave when their governments basically sell them down the river and say, we're, we're perfectly happy to give away your sovereignty. We didn't know, we didn't know what One Health was. We thought this was just the kindly WHO trying to help everybody if there was another pandemic. Um, so what do you think we can do at that point, James? Unfortunately, I am left in the same position that I have been for months thinking about this, is that I really don't see a, a, a satisfying way out of this from within the structures of being a WHO member state. Um, now, uh, of course, yes. The, the, for example, as you say, with the uh, IHR amendments, there are 10 months for countries to opt out. And that would provide some sort of window for people to rally in the political cause of getting them to opt out of the IHR amendments, whatever those might propose. But even then, fundamentally speaking, what does that really mean when a state is obligated by the IHR, the international health regulations, to do such and such a thing? What what enforcement mechanism does the World Health Organization really have and what does it come down to it? Fundamentally, this comes down to some major political leader of some important state, the United States or a, another country, perhaps, putting their foot down and saying, nope, done, we're out and do whatever you think you're going to do, but you can't come in and enforce it. Now, actually, I did find it interesting that in this latest pandemic agreement text, um, they have managed to keep some of that uh, uh, that language that we noted they were trying to take out before about preserving uh, individual human freedom or uh, I can't remember the human rights and freedom and dignity or whatever. Right. They were trying to take that language out, as you recall, in earlier drafts. Well, they, it is there. Num Article 3.1, respect for human rights. The implementation of this agreement shall be with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons. Apparently, it might have been too controversial to try taking that out or at least try taking that out yet. So they, they took it out of the of the amendments. So ah, yes, human right. rights, okay. Not dignity, the agreement. Yeah. human rights, Even I'm getting confused, of, yeah. And freedom of persons was in the existing, is existing international health regulations. That whatever the WHO yeah. does, they're supposed to have respect for human rights. Well, when they wrote, uh, you know, tried to harmonize all these amendments, what we saw in February was they'd crossed it out. They got rid of it. And then people complained, of course. And so come June, they threw the identical language into the pandemic treaty draft. Now, we don't know if it's been put back in the amendments. My guess is it was, wasn't. And they were just throwing a stop to us by putting yeah. it. Yeah, I think this is a stop to people. Either way, I mean, again, this is not the final version of whatever is going to be presented. So we don't know. But I, I do want to note that also point number two, sovereignty. States have, in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations, and the general principles of international law, 
the sovereign right to legislate and to implement legislation in pursuance of their health policies. So again, this is a sop to those who are saying, you know, this is going to take over and the WHO is going to dictate. No, 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 no. You still have your sovereignty under United Nations in accordance with the charter of the United Nations. You have your sovereignty, right? The United Nations grants you your sovereignty, which I hope people are picking up on the not so subtle vibes of that. No, it, again, are you a sovereign state or not? And um, as a member of the United Nations who is signing on to more and more of these conventions and agreements and and obligations, you're ceding more and more and more of the sovereignty um, every single time. But don't worry, the, 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 under the, the charter of the United Nations, you have your sovereignty, right? Um, which can be revoked at any time, just like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which the UN loves to promote, which has all these wonderful, wonderful articles about these beautiful rights that all humans of the world have and blah, blah, blah. But the, one of the, the, the second to last article is uh, essentially, but if you try to use this in any way that's not, that the UN doesn't like, we can revoke it. <laughs> so that's exactly <laughs> that, that type of escape clause that they put in there. But anyway, yeah, that's just yeah. a sop to the people who actually care about this type of thing. And so that they can then say that people like you and me and other people who are warning about that this is this is undermining your sovereignty, they'll be able to say, uh, that's misinformation because look here, Article 3.2, it says you have sovereignty under the Charter of the United Nations. So anyway, take yeah. it for what it's worth, which is not much. But at any rate, it, it does show that they at least have to put that language in here, at least for now, in order to placate people who are increasingly aware of what's happening right now and are concerned about it. And that in and of itself is is some sign for a uh, potential hope because it really does represent, I think they are aware that just how deeply unpopular and how carefully they have to move on these types of things in order to secure their agreement. Um, once right. they have it in place, as I say, it's the blank check that can write anything they want for in perpetuity. That's why they're very carefully trying to inch up to it and trying to calm people. Don't worry, you still have your sovereignty. You still have your individual freedom. So I, the sovereignty issue is huge. You know, it's the one thing that people challenge me on, both in the U.S. and in Europe. They say, I, we don't see how our government could you know, turnover sovereignty, how could they have sovereignty? So first thing you do is you say, well, there's actually three Supreme Court cases where it was determined that international law had authority over domestic law. But also, you know, think about this issue of, well, your country has sovereignty because they can still make laws about health and um, implement them. Okay, Vichy France, you know, had, had a government that was still running in France with French people in it, but they were taking their orders from the Germans, the Nazis. And so, yeah, they made laws, they implemented them, but, you know, off with their heads if they did anything that the Nazis didn't want. So this is the same sort of thing. And it's the same thing as the puppet governments in um, Eastern Europe during the Soviet regime. Yes, they had laws, they had governments, you know, Romania, Hungary, all these kinds, Yugoslavia, but, you know, very limited um, autonomy, very, very limited. Meryl, I am going to steal that analogy. That is so great. From now on, that is the analogy to use. Every member of the United Nations, every signatory to the, the World Health Assembly, every everyone who signs on to the World Health Agreement is Vichy France. And you are you have these collaborators that are pretending to be a government for your, your nation, but they are not. They are beholden to this outside power. That is the way to frame it, that people can potentially Thank understand you. what's happening. 
Yeah. So they're really worried. And, uh, you know, November 8th, Tedros came out with another statement that these people are lying. These are lies. You you guys in the INB have to, you know, in the negotiating group, you have to go back to your countries and say, no, this is a lie. We're not taking away your sovereignty. Um, but the the WHO, you know, lies about a lot of things. <laughs> and it's, it's not the first time Tedros has, has jumped on this sovereignty issue because it's clearly the most sensitive one for them. I also identified uh, a WHO website which said, well, how are nations going to, um, you know, comply with these, uh, the treaty or the IHRs? And it said each nation has to be accountable and it has to use its own um, mechanisms. So the problem for the, those in the U.S. is while we have the Biden administration and they, they started this process with all the amendments um, two years ago. And so the Biden administration is all in. They will use the policing powers of the state to enforce this. Um, what we're looking for is nations that are not willing to do that, of course. Um, another uh, odd thing, now that we're talking about things that got changed, is normally in these diplomatic uh, multinational processes and agreements and treaties, they're very slow to develop them and they're slow to come into force. So the new amendments to the IHRs were gonna take two years uh, up until now when those new amendments uh, take hold uh, at the beginning of December. But for this treaty, the way it's written, it's gonna come into, a, into force a month after the 40th country signs on, but it's gonna take you three years to get out. So you can't even apply it. Once you're in, once you're one of those countries that is ratified, it's going to take you two years before you can even apply to get out. And then it's going to take you another year before you can get out. So think about that. One month to get in, you know, before it becomes effective for your nation, three years before you can exit. You know, this is sort of like no exit. Um, makes you wonder how quickly the globalists plan to really take over. They want to do things fast, but they don't want you, they want the news around your neck. I think people have to start saying, wait a minute, you know, we're not going to obey um, laws that we find illegal or, you know, absolutely wrong. We thought we had a constitution that gave our nation sovereignty. We have individual sovereignty. We gave up our arms for these darn vaccines and look what happened. You know, we were fooled that we, they were fed to us fraudulently. Our government has been lying to us and cheating us in all sorts of ways that has that have become so apparent during the pandemic. And uh, you know, goodbye, government. In some places, the in some parts of Spain, I'm told the police have have given up fighting the citizens who who are revolting against pandemic um, restrictions and moved to the side of the citizens. So I think that's where we have to go. We have to make friends with the policing entities, the armies and the police. And we all have to get together and say, wait a minute, this government is not on our side. It's not working for us. It's working for someone else. It's working to enslave us. And we're not going to go along with it. And, uh, you know, people need to, do, you know, I lost my medical license. So it's okay. I mean, I could. I could afford to lose it. I'm old enough that I didn't have to work anymore. Um, but people are going to have to pay a price. Unfortunately, it's not. It's not going to be easy 
to fight this stuff. So I think we, we need to get prepared. People, a lot of people in my area are learning how to grow food, you know, building greenhouses and getting ready for a difficult uh, situation coming. You know, you're you're so right about that. And thank you for placing the emphasis on the right place, because, again, we can get caught up in the game of, OK, well, as opposed to this globalist agreement, what we want is the national sovereignty to decide our own. But who's this we? Who are you? To, who's we, Kimosabe? No, as if the national government is going to be any better when you're talking about the Biden regime or the Trudeau regime or what have you. No, uh, that that isn't the principle that we need to be really fundamentally fighting for. It is individual human sovereignty, and um, that can only be accomplished, as you say, if uh, the people, at any rate, are on are on board with uh, with the principles that we hold to. Then. The people who claim to be ruling over us can make whatever decisions they want, but it is the question of enforcement. So you're ex exceptionally right about that. And what we really need to start developing is the professional infrastructure to allow doctors to have their own ideas, um, as you know all too well. And I will uh, I will let people know who haven't heard otherwise, uh, Dr. Mark Trozzi. Um, recently in Canada there as now defending his medical license from suspension because he had the nerve to question the scamdemic response, etc. So um, it's happening all over the world. Doctors are being defrocked from the, the, doc, the, the medical priesthood um, that they are granted by their licensing bodies that are then beholden to these larger structures that are then beholden to the World Health Organization. And we have to completely reimagine the system so that it's from the ground up rather than from some top-down authority. And that's where the fundamental solution to this is going to lie. And so in the, in the nation-state infrastructure as it exists with regards to member states of the World Health Organization, etc., yes, yes, it, it, of course, it takes however many years they say it's going to take to, to actually get out of the World Health Organization. But in reality, no. Some leader can come along and say, done we're out we refuse to comply we're we're out and by fiat by declaration can just be out of the organization we're not paying anything more we're not following your rules what are you going to do about it come in with your who army and invade us well at least at this point uh that seems unlikely so it really is that declaration of sovereignty that can be made at any time and it's people who get it caught in the process of well there's this piece of paper that says it'll take <laughs> 842 years for us to remove ourselves from this organization. So I guess we're just st stuck. No, that's the shackles of the mind. And in the exact same way, individual humans, I think, individual free sovereign individuals have to reclaim their sovereignty from the, the local or the national structures that claim to be ruling over them. And that is really the way forward to this. It's a complete reimagination of how this, how this infrastructure works. But as you say, the most important link in all of that is for us to be on the same board, uh, uh, on board with the the would-be enforcers. What are the actual boots on the ground, police and doctors and others? Are they going to be listening to their health authorities and licensing boards and the gov national governments and the globalist dictates, or are they going to be listening to the people? And to the extent that they're on board with the people, you have some version of freedom. And uh, so that's why I think probably outreach on that level to the enforcers of this would-be globalist uh, biosecurity state is probably the most important thing that individual humans can be doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and deciding, you know, where your red lines are, 
what you're not going to put up with. So um, two other things I wanted to talk about briefly were one, um, we had a, a breakfast for members of Congress and staff. It was hosted by Senator Ron Johnson, who is, you know, uh, the, just an amazing hero in Congress for his interest in the vaccine fraud, his willingness to call a spade a spade, his support, even though um, vaccine injured people are sometimes frustrated because nothing has happened for them. I have to tell them that, you know, a huge, a huge um, enterprise has is acting against them because uh, basically nobody can afford to pay them for all. There are so many injuries. The um, same thing happened with anthrax vaccine, which is why I feel like I have some authority to say this is, you know, the, the system did everything in its power from sending people from CDC to try to turn doctors' uh, diagnoses, you know, that they might have had a, somebody might have had a vaccine injury from anthrax vaccine. And so the whole system, the whole infrastructure of HHS and the rest of the federal government is active trying to stop, um, despite all this data that's come out showing that the vaccines are very injurious, but they're just holding the line, you know, arms linked, heels together. We are not going to admit anything. We're going to keep telling the lies. The lies may get bigger and bigger. Even, even now that we know the life expectancy has gone down. Um, life expectancy in the U.S. supposedly is like age 76. Uh, I'm, I think that's for men. Uh, but it's gone down three years since the pandemic started, which is unbelievably, but, you know, we, we've never seen anything like this. It's never gone down three years before since recorded history. Um, so Senator Johnson is doing everything in his power to, but he can't, he told us at the breakfast that there are vaccine injured senators who have spoken to him. And not only will they not lift a finger, to help all these other vaccine injured people, they won't even call a doctor who knows something about treating the injuries to get themselves treated. So um, it, it's a crazy situation in Washington. But you know, at some point the dam will burst. As I said, if they paid off, you know, the well over you know millions of Americans who have been grievously injured or killed uh, as a result of these vaccines it would really bankrupt the whole system. Of course, they could just print money. They're very good at that. They could print the money and give it out, but that's not the game they play. You only print money for, for you know, Amazon and DOD, <laughs> you know, Bill Gates. You don't print money for vaccine injuries. Um, so we had a breakfast. We talked about the WHO in particular, but we also went a little further afield. We talked about how not only have the laws changed to, to give ma vaccine manufacturers liability for pandemic products, uh, the laws have also changed so that your retirement, your savings could be snatched um, in the event of a financial meltdown. And that's something few people are aware of. It was discovered by a, a guy who was a hedge fund manager, David Webb, an American who, who lives in Sweden. He's written a book, you can get it on the internet, called The Great Taking. And we've also, uh, he and Ellen Brown, who is an expert on public banking, have created a, a two-page summary of, of what they have concluded from studying lots of laws and documents to, to 
dig into the mechanisms by which um, your money can be taken. So this is really important because it's another way we're being attacked and almost no one knows about it. And it's going to require um, Congress to, to make some changes, to fix it really fast before things fall apart and we do lose everything because of these legal, um, sneaky legal methods that have been put into place because most members of Congress and state legislators, a lot of them was, a lot of this was done at the state level. People just didn't know what was going, what was happening. Um, so it's important to know about that. And I, the reason I think it's super important is because money is more important than health to people in Congress and uh, to many people around the world. And so if you tell them they have a possibility, they themselves have a possibility of losing everything, I think they just may listen. And so um, we wanna send that message out. The uh, Epoch Times streamed the, it was about a one and a half to two hour presentation. We had nine speakers and then there was about an hour for questions and answers, which was really, really good. Um, really tied things together. You can watch it on Epoch Times TV. And we have it up on our Door to Freedom, you know, my new organization that is fighting the WHO and fighting the globalists. So we have a lot of information on our website, doortofreedom.org. And um, so the whole uh, event, this uh, br breakfast briefing to Congress, is up there as well. I also created, and other people are doing a great job of improving on it, a list. I've been sort of developing it over a month or two of all the different ways we are being attacked. And um, I think, it yes, it can be put up so we can all look at it. And this, this is not a complete list. This is what one of my readers created to, to sort of create some order to all these things. If you look around at the at the world and see that everything is changing, it's like, what's happening? How did all these things start changing just over the last few years? And when you start looking at all of them together, you realize that there was a plan behind them. And um, the plan was to gain control, more control, I think to weaken us, to weaken our, our network, our social networks by getting people to fight with their families and their friends, weaken us educationally, make, you know, stupefy people by giving them lots of confusing information, um, giving, giving them truth mixed in with falsehoods, you know, just um, all, all sorts of things, all kinds of propaganda. Um, have been done, you know, you're, you can't trust your doctor, you can't trust your friends, you can't trust your lawyer, can't trust the government. I mean, people are um, trying to find solid ground and having a hard time. And that has enabled, you know, the system to get away with murder, basically, get away with doing all these things to us. And so when you start listing all the things that are happening that don't make sense and that are negative, that are really harming our society and us as individuals, you say, aha, it's all part of the same plan. And um, I don't know if James has any comments on that, but I, I'd love I, to- I have a lot, keep actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, this, is, this is really good, really handy to have this in this 
format that people can easily see and understand. And it is important. I think you framed it in the right way here, the new world disorder, because here we are talking and examining carefully the World Health Organization and its various machinations and agreements and treaties and blah, blah, blah. But fundamentally, it, we have to remind ourselves from time to time, this has nothing to do with health um, in any sense. Um, and specifically, even in the sense of, it, even if we're just talking about the, the medical allopathic system as it exists and what we've been told constitutes health, etc. That isn't what this is about. This is about a funding mechanism for this giant blank check that can do anything it wants to control people at individual levels into the future. And in, to put that in perspective, we have to we have to understand that this, what we're talking about relates to these various categories of order and disorder. And uh, for people who don't know, of course, it's an old concept, order out of chaos, um, is an old uh, sort of unifying concept for people who want to lead uh, uh, society in a given direction. Uh, there's this horrible chaos, we have to come along and provide the order. And so we are the authorities. And there is an interesting implication of that um, recognition of order out of chaos, which is that, well, then if you want a different order, if you want to create a different structure of government and control, then you have to create the disorder, the chaos that you can then come along and organize. And I think that is well represented in this chart. So you see, for example, the social disorder that is being caused by all of these different social mechanisms of uh, gender confusion and eliminating religious rights, unchecked immigration, division, isolation, intolerance, all of these things that are being done on a social level to atomize and to tear people apart, that is then going to be put back together by the state and the global organizations, et cetera, that are going to come along with their surveillance and control in order to put this back in the bottle. And of course, this relates to every aspect of this agenda from the environment. Of course, there are real, true environmental problems that are generally being caused by these gigantic multinational corporations and or militaries and other institutions that it's not it's not you and, and me driving around in our cars that is killing the planet. It is this incredible infrastructure of totalitarian control. But of course, they use our perception of the problem as the excuse to come along and create the order. So it's extremely handy to have this in this visual style in this layout and as you say this of course isn't the full complete total list of everything but it is a good way to start organizing and thinking about this information and as our talented producer riley was pointing out just before we started recording this it's good that it actually kind of resembles that un sdg chart that we're being conditioned to accept i don't know what it's like in america but here in japan that sdg rainbow propaganda garbage is everywhere and people are being conditioned to think of things in terms of how does this meet what sdg goal is this thing that we're doing meeting um so it it is handy to have this organized in a way that we can actually use this to to say okay so which which of the globalist agenda items does this fall into and how can we more effectively resist it so i think there's probably a way to further develop this chart but i think this is a great great way to start getting people to think about the fact this is not just about the World Health Organization and some agreement that's being talked about. This is about the broader spectrum of control. Absolutely. And, you know, they told us this. They told us they were doing, they didn't realize it. When all these different heads of state said, we have to build back better. It's like, why do you have to build back better? And we're already built, right? But they had to tear down first 
and then they could build back better. Um, I mean, crazy stuff is happening. The, a plan to cut down all these trees because you then bury the trees and then you get carbon credits. It's like, hello, hello. What in what world does that make sense? That's that's you know you're helping the planet. I mean, the trees. If the trees keep growing, they're taking carbon out of the air. You don't need to bury it. But I mean, these are because what they want to do is you know charge us lots of money. They want to have a, a new, um, what do you call it? a new stock market, you know, and a new industry of carbon credits. If if they can convince us, if they can get it through their, the legislatures, um, you know, that we, we need to spend taxpayer dollars on carbon credits to save the planet. And it is, you know, it's, I haven't seen those SDGs anywhere but on the internet here in the U.S. Um, so I was astounded by what you said about Japan, but um, that is just a harbinger of how how powerful they are, and how the you know the tentacles of this globalist plan are just moving into every aspect of our lives um, without people being able to to grasp what's happening. They just know they're disoriented, disconnected, and unhappy, um, and fearful of what's coming next. Yes, fear. I think that's. That's one of the keys that we have to point out. Um, I am no FDR fan generally, but nothing to fear but fear itself is almost a good phrase. But I would amend that. Nothing to fear but fear itself and those who wish us to live in a state of fear. Because that, I think, is the overarching principle here. They want us disorganized. They want us in chaos. They want us divided against each other. And they want us fearful. So how do we combat this agenda? We get together. We do not live in fear. We do not panic. We do not think of ourselves as weak, poor, pathetic. Oh, what can we possibly do against the mighty giant juggernaut of the state? No, we have to reclaim our individual sovereignty and live it and work with other people to do so. And to the extent that they can keep us divided along these petty lines of doctrinal division uh, is the extent to which they can rule over us. And we have to start realizing that, that our real enemy isn't the person that you're talking to in the comment section of one of these alternative media news sites. It is it is this these psychopathic um, people who are trying to rule over the world. And, and once we really put that in perspective and really see what the real danger is, I think we can overcome that fear and start acting from a position of actual power and sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, there's very few of them. Um, they rely on their, you know, 5G networks, which we can, you know, send some paint, you know, on them or, you know, we can, we can, you know, take a shotgun or a, a little, you know, even it doesn't even have to be a gun, you know, little nothing and knock them down and get rid of their cameras. I mean, get rid of their system and they won't be able to do anything. They will have nothing. And what they've got now is a lot of data on us and they think they can control us through the computers and the phones that we are paying for. Um, and when we say, you know, no to that, no, thank you very much. You know, we can educate our own kids and we can do things ourselves. And we don't have to give the government any, our, any more tax money because we're done with you. You know, you, you're not, you're not using our tax money anymore to enslave us. Um, once we realize that's where it's going, and then we become so much stronger, you know, I mean, look at me, I was, I'm a little old lady, but I didn't know I had this in me, but, you know, it, it 
universe pulled it out of me and and here i am instead of playing with my grandchildren and gardening i'm i'm fighting the beast and um you know it's easy to do because there's nothing better to do right i mean that's what you figured out a yeah. long time ago James. you see yeah there's this is also something that they like to play on is uh, uh trying to make everything convenient and easy and fun and distractionary and oh don't you just want to go and scroll some social media feed and all day and just sort of you know veg out and of course that's the easy lazy way of going through life but there is no satisfaction in that and people i think are starting to realize just how empty and meaningless their lives are when they are simply going along with the flow and don't, oh, it's too much. I can't, I'm, I'm just going to veg out in front of the TV. No, when people actually start taking action, they can find meaning in their life. The reason you are unhappy is because you are not on the path you are meant to be on. Get on the path you are meant to be on and you will find that happiness that exists. Yep. And you'll get great friends. <laughs> you'll be hanging out with the best people. Exactly. So... Um, there's a million other things that we can point out with regards to this agenda. But I think, again, it comes down to the fundamental principles that we are fighting for. And uh, and once we have those in mind and we can find those like-minded people, honestly, I think, there, uh, yes, it's going to be a struggle. It is, of course, going to be a struggle. But life is a struggle. And uh, and so people who would give up before the, the battle is even engaged are... Well, were they ever in the fight at all is really the question. And so anyway, people who know me know that I'm not uh, the type to go, oh, boo-hoo, poor me. I'm just a pathetic individual. And no, this is all so overwhelming. No, I think we are here to to make our mark on this world. And I'm I, that's why I'm so glad to be around um, people like yourself and others who are fighting for what is right. And let's continue doing it. Let's continue working and growing together. And I think Door to Freedom is one of those options that people have to start exploring ways that they can start making a difference. Thank you. Thanks so much. See you in a month. Absolutely.